You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. I want to thank Dr. Sunit Shohan, who is professor in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine, Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. Dr. Shohan is also PI for the Maternal Fetal Medicines Unit Network, and he has taken time to join us today in a discussion of his recently published article, The Persistence of Neonatal Brachial Plexus Palsy Associated with Maternally Reported Route of Delivery, a review of 387 cases. This article can be found at the American Journal of Perinatology website as well as on our Apple iTunes American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. The article as well as podcasts are open access so that you can read along as you listen to the podcast today. Thank you very much, Dr. Shohan, for joining us today. No, thank you, Dr. Robinson, for inviting us. This is a great article, and I think it's a question that no matter what form of obstetrics you have been exposed to, we all think about neonatal brachial plexus palsies. We think about shoulder dystocias. In this case, you did a very interesting review of a very large number of cases of neonatal brachial plexus palsy. I wonder if you could start with some background on why you decided to pursue this investigation and why it answers an important problem. That's a very good question to start with. Um, In 2014, we published a review article of 63 publications on neonatal brachial plexus, and one of the notable findings in the review was that thus far there were only seven publications from United States which reported on the likelihood of persistent brachial palsy being defined as neurological injury for at least one year. Among these seven publications, there were a total of 267 neonatal brachial palsy, with one publication contributing to 33% of all brachial plexus palsy in the United States. This publication had only 89 brachial plexus, which was obtained by reviewing charts at one single tertiary center over 23 years. Thus, we thought there is a need for a larger from other centers. Thus, I was fortunate enough to collaborate with one of my co-authors, Dr. Linda Yang, who's a neurosurgeon at the University of Michigan and her multidisciplinary team. Our report attempted to address two important aspects of persistent brachial plexus palsy. First, is it feasible to have persistent brachial plexus palsy after cesarean delivery? Second, Without shoulder dystocia, can neonatal brachial plexus palsy persist for at least one or two years? So I'm going to restate that for our podcast listeners because I think that's a key component here is you had two objectives, and this was to look at the persistent neonatal brachial plexus palsy at both one year, and like you say, the previous literature had really limited itself to this one year cutoff, but you also took this to two years in children who were delivered via vaginal delivery versus a cesarean delivery. And then you further looked at this data from the standpoint of these children, whether they were delivered via vaginal delivery with or without 
the report of shoulder dystocia. So really this expands upon the current U.S.-based literature you know, in the circumstance. Now, one of the things we always think about when we look at these cases is how were the cases followed in a circumstance? I mean, how did the Michigan brachial plexus program work in looking at these cases? So the University of Michigan Brachial Plexus multidisciplinary clinic consists of neurosurgeon, plastic surgeon, physical medicine, and rehab physician, as well as nurse practitioners, occupational therapists, researchers, and case managers. The children were followed in a standard fashion, starting at the time of referral of birth, then subsequently at one month, three months, six months, one year, then one and a half years, and then two years of persistent symptoms. So that is certainly a strength that you were able to look out all the way to two years. Now, when evaluating these types of cases of brachial plexus palsy, was this a structured type of evaluation that was conducted in these cases? Yes. One dedicated occupational therapist evaluated the patient at each visit using a standard protocol for assessing the function as well as rehabilitation physician and surgeon to examine each child using the same protocol over the 10 years. In this case, you were able to identify a very large number of cases of neonatal brachial plexus palsy. And more importantly, there was also a significant number that were noted from cesarean delivery. Did you see any significant differences in the maternal demographics between those who had this experience with a vaginal delivery versus those who had the same experience as a cesarean delivery? So over 10 years, we were able to obtain records of 390 children with neonatal brachial plexus who were managed in Michigan. Among these cohorts, 8% of women had cesarean delivery. These 30 women with cesarean delivery, when compared with 357 women who delivered vaginally, did not differ with regards to maternal age, ethnicity, being non-Paris versus Paris, history of diabetes, hypertension, as well as history of prior shoulder dystocia. What the two groups did differ was gestational age of delivery and whether they underwent induction was the two major differences among the groups who had vaginal versus cesarean delivery and subsequent child with neonatal brachial plexus palsy. So it's interesting that when you look at the reports of prior shoulder dystocia in the demographics, the report was similar between both vaginal delivery and cesarean delivery groups. So do we have any information that might suggest that management was significantly altered when there was a prior history of shoulder dystocia noted in the pregnancy preceding that that resulted in neonatal brachial plexus palsy? Excellent question, Dr. Robinson. The rate of prior shoulder dystocia was 6% with women who delivered vaginally versus 7% for those who underwent cesarean delivery. Regretfully, since the data is self-reported by the mother, we do not have any specific data on how the management in the index of the current pregnancy was altered by the clinician because of the history of shoulder dystocia. So regretfully, we do not have that variable. There were differences noted regarding the intrapartum care when stratified by the mode of delivery. What differences did you find in that area and does this yield any important considerations that we might consider for intrapartum management for future investigations? 
The significant intrapartum difference among those who had cesarean delivery versus vaginal delivery and subsequently delivered a child with neonatal brachial plexus palsy was gestational age of delivery and whether they were induced or not. Once again, since we were unable to actually review the chart, it's difficult to suggest how we might avert the neurological injury except to echo what the national guidelines and their recommendations on induction, safe prevention on primary cesarean, management of women with history of impacted shoulder, and how to resolve the shoulder dystocia once it is encountered. I wonder if you would share with us just for a moment the different types of neonatal brachial plexus palsy, and specifically if we could discuss exactly were there any differences that you saw between those that were delivered, the type of brachial plexus palsy that was seen between those infants delivered by cesarean versus those delivered by vaginal to answer that, one thing we have to recall is that in the neurosurgery literature, they divide brachial plexus palsy into upper and total. The upper neonatal brachial plexus palsy involves C5, C6, and sometimes C7, which affect function of deltoid, bicep, tricep, and wrist extensor. When a child has new total neonatal brachial plexus palsy, it represents paralysis of the whole arm muscle with all nerve roots, which is C5 to T1, being involved. With that in mind, it is notable that there was no statistical difference regarding the type of neonatal brachial plexus palsy in the two groups. Upper neonatal brachial plexus palsy was present in approximately 55% of adjoint delivery and 67% of cesarean. Total neonatal brachial plexus palsy was present in approximately 44% of vaginal delivery and 30% of cesarean delivery. Again, no significant difference. One other aspect of the study is that you followed a large group of infants with neonatal brachial plexus palsy across a two-year period, which was greater than that that has been reported in the literature thus far. So what can we learn about the persistence or resolution of neonatal brachial plexus palsy in infants that are born by cesarean versus vaginal delivery? I think for the first time, we have been able to show that persistent neonatal brachial plexus palsy is possible subsequent to cesarean delivery and that there's no difference in the likelihood of persistent neonatal brachial plexus palsy among children delivered vaginally with or without self-reported shoulder dystocia. If you look at the comparison of cases that were with or without the report of shoulder dystocia, we see that there's really no significant difference in the persistence of neonatal brachial plexus palsy dependent upon the report of the presence or absence of shoulder dystocia at delivery at one or two years. Does this data give us any insight about mechanisms and outcomes for infants who have a documented shoulder dystocia versus those that don't have a shoulder dystocia but still have a neonatal brachial plexus palsy? Among the 317 women in the cohort who delivered vaginally and had a child with neonatal brachial plexus, 32 or about one-third reported that the index pregnancy was not complicated by shoulder dystocia. This rate is consistent with prior publications which have noted that 22 to 47 of neonatal brachial plexus occur without concomitant shoulder dystocia. Thus, we conclude that if indeed 61% of neonatal brachial plexus managed by a multidisciplinary 
is without self-reported shoulder dystocia and are persistent, then it supports the theory that maternal expulsive effort may be linked with persistent neonatal brachial plexus palsy lasting for two years. Dr. Shivan, what would you consider limitations and strengths of this investigation as reported? The major limitations are that the obstetric factors were self-reported by the mother and we described the experience from one center. Despite these two major limitations, we know that the availability of actual obstetric record does not assure whether the shoulder dystocia is or not present, or we know that shoulder dystocia at times is not documented accurately. The unique strength of our report is that it's a singular publication which has 223 cases of brachial plexus palsy which have persisted for at least two years, while in the seven reports we summarized two years ago, there were only 25 cases of persistent neonatal brachial plexus palsy, a relative difference of almost 800%. All children were managed by the same multidisciplinary team with expertise and experience in the neurological injury. Thus, we think our findings are unique and applicable to other populations. This is certainly very helpful information and very novel information. I want to congratulate you on a great manuscript here that really does help us address significant limitations in the literature currently. Anytime we write a paper like this, we always think about what's our next step? You know, what are the things that might have been raised, unanswered questions that may be present as a result of this type of research? And what do you see are those unanswered questions that need to be addressed in future research projects concerning neonatal brachial plexus palsy that might be considered? Optimally, our hope is that we will be able to undertake a prospective multi-center study of all cases of shoulder dystocia and of all cases of neonatal brachial plexus palsy noted at birth, regardless of the route of delivery. These children should be followed up to one to two years to determine what, if any, preventable wearables are linked with persistent brachial plexus palsy. Without such a large funded research, I think we may continue to take unnecessary intervention and not be able to mitigate the adverse outcome associated with brachial plexus palsy at birth. Dr. Shohan, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to spend with us today to discuss this manuscript. And we certainly do appreciate you lending your insight and background to the written manuscript, both of which this podcast as well as the manuscript will be open access for our readers. It will be available both at the American Journal of Perinatology website as well as our Apple iTunes download site for the podcast. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Shohan. Thank you very much for shining light on our work, and I would like to reach out and thank my co-authors who were responsible for this manuscript. Thank you very much, and until next time, we look forward to our next podcast and you joining us for additional insight for those articles published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Thank you very much. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.